0: This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog containing containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-337A Avenue. Edmonton, Alberta, Canada T6L 3T5 If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. Lectures upon the Principal Prophecies of the Le- of the Revelation by Alexander Macleod, Doctor of Divinity, 1814, as read by Samantha Ellosice Tape number 2. Lecture number 3, The Sealed Book Revelation 5, verse 1-9 And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals, etc., etc. With the sealed book, the prophetical part of the revelation commences. All that is before this is description or narrative. It is in the fourth chapter, the writer is himself introduced to those scenes which are predictive. Verses 1 and 2 after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Chapter 5, verse 1 And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the back side, Sealed with seven seals. Verse 4 And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book. From this representation, it is not only perfectly obvious that the first invitation which the Apostle John received to survey futurity is in the first verse of the fourth chapter, but it is also apparent that after his attention is fixed upon the object to which it was invited, all future events are still shut up from his anxious eye. The entire prophetic period is a sealed book which no creature can disclose. It is in the fifth chapter we are first introduced to the Mediator in the character of the Revealer of what is to come to pass in relation to his church on earth. And it is not until the sixth chapter that the seals are in fact broken up and the prospective history commences. It is therefore obvious that there is less of judgment than of fancy in the attempt of Dr. Moore to discover in the second and third chapters a complete history of future churches and in the efforts of Dr. Johnston to make the four living creatures of the fourth and fifth chapters prophetical symbols. By such interpretations there is indeed afforded an ample opportunity to, to display fertility of genius. Fiction always affords more scope to inventive power than does actual history. It is no less injurious, nevertheless, to the true interpretation of the Apocalypse to force a predictive sense on passages which are merely descriptive than it is to expound as referring to the past or to the present or the past, those in which future events are indeed unfolded. To allegorize plain language and to construe metaphor literally are alike incompatible with sound criticism. With these observations, I proceed to lay before you the several parts of this lecture. I shall explain the scenery employed in bringing the sealed book to view, show what is signified by opening this book, and make some concluding reflections. It will be readily admitted by all men that a correct knowledge of those events which are yet to come to pass so far as it exceeds the province of human sagacity, must depend upon information communicated by him who knows the end from the beginning. The writer of the book of Revelation is therefore careful to explain the manner in which he became the depository of those secrets of the Almighty. This explanation is given in the introduction to the sealed book. I shall now lay it before you. Number 1. Let us examine the scenery employed in bringing to view the sealed book. The divine revelation made to John was of that kind which is called vision. It is a representation made to the mind by supernatural power, having precisely the same effect that external objects have, when, in a clear light, they are distinctly presented to the eye. No sooner had he heard the invitation, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter, than he was the subject of inspiration. He was prepared, of course, and to contemplate what I had not seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. Immediately I was in the spirit. What he then beheld is the first prophetic vision. It invites your attention, Christians, not so much from the variety, the boldness, and the splendor of its imagery, as from the interesting and important doctrines which it inculcates and unfolds. It exhibits the throne of God in heaven as he sitteth on it, the characters that compose his retinue, and the Redeemer of men honored of God and worshipped by every creature. One. Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. This scene has an allusion to the temple of Jerusalem, the place of the divine presence among his people. There he dwelt in the splendor, or Shekinah above the mercy seat. Footnote. Shekinah is very often mentioned in the Jewish writings and signifies in their Targums or paraphrases the Divine Presence, or the Holy Ghost. The Shekinah is that extraordinary luminous body which by miracle rested over the mercy seat and between the cherubim. It was the most sensible token of the Divine Presence among the Hebrews. It was familiarly called the Glory of the Lord, the Presence of the Lord. In the infancy of society and before revealed truth was diffused by writings, God assured His people of His Presence by such a sensible manifestation. Thus he appeared to Adam when banished, the garden of Eden, and to Abel and the patriarchs when he accepted their sacrifices. Thus he appeared to the Hebrews in the famous pillar, alternately opaque and luminous. Thus he appeared in the burning bush on Mount Sinai, in the tabernacle, and in the temple. End of footnote. He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. It is not necessary that he be named. His throne proclaims the governor of the universe. Although there is no similitude of him, his appearance is in glory. The jasper is a bright, transparent stone. The sardine is like a flame, a ruby. The former signifies the holiness of the Lord, and the latter his justice. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And there was a rainbow round about the throne... In sight likened to an emerald. The rainbow is the well-known sign of God's covenant. Genesis 9.13 It represents the promise and the oath of the covenant of grace and so adorns the head of Jesus Christ. Footnote. Habakkuk 3.9 and Revelation 10.1 End of footnote. Here Here it surrounds the throne of God to show that it is the throne of grace as well as righteousness. The bow, too, partakes of the verdant hue of the green emerald in token of the relief which it gives to the eye from the splendor of divine justice and to show that the covenant of grace ever abides the new covenant. There is no access to the throne but by covenant. There is nothing that proceeds from the throne but through this covenant. All the divine dispensations are subservient to it and it is the bond of our communion with God. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings. The mercy of God does not impair his justice and diminish his power. He is a consuming fire. Thus he appeared from Mount Sinai to the trembling Hebrews. Even Moses did fear and quake. Glorious, God is glorious in holiness and fearful in praises. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven lamps appertained to the golden candlestick, which was before the most holy place. They pointed out, for they are even called by the name of angels in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That they are placed near to God, yea, nearer than angels are, is evident from chapter 4, verse 6, and 5, verse 11, and is perfectly conclusive that they are distinct from angels. Redeemed, Redeemed men, being united by the Spirit of God to Jesus Christ, are thus made one with God in Him, John 17, 21. They must, therefore, although originally made lower than the angels, become nearer to their God than these sons of the morning. There is another consideration, however, that puts the question at rest. They are made to sing, chapter 5, verse 9, a song which in the mouth of any but redeemed men would be a falsehood. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. They are, in fact, throughout their whole description, perfectly distinguished from the angels. They are evidently, too, a distinct order of the redeemed and saved sinners. Their employment, as well as their situation and character, points them out as the faithful ambassadors of the cross of Christ. At the opening of the seals, chapter 6, they call to the churches, Come and see. In other words, they are the watchmen who expound the prophecy and teach to men their duty. They are placed between other saints and the throne, being the official attendants upon their Lord and Savior. They are described as full of eyes to mark their discernment, and compared to the lion and to the ox, to man and to the eagle, to denote their courage, their patience, their humanity, and their celerity, elevation of mind, and quick-sightedness in the service of God. This description is not intended to apply so much to each or any individual pastor in the Christian church as to the collective body they are said to be in number four this number is often used to signify universality the four winds of heaven footnote Daniel 7:2 and 11:4 as well as Revelation 7:1 and the footnote are all winds the four corners, footnote, Isaiah 11.12, Ezekiel seven two, see Philo and Pythagoras as quoted by Woodhouse, end of footnote. Of the land are the whole country. Dr. Johnston says this number denotes four successive periods from the days of the apostles to the final judgment. He imagines the first, lion, symbolizes the primitive mis- ministry. The second, calf or young ox, The Ministry of the Dark Ages The Third Man The Ministry of the Reformation The Fourth Eagle That of the Millennium It is, however, a mere assumption that the four living creatures are symbolical of any distinct periods and especially of the four which are here specified. This interpretation gives an exposition of one of the most interesting concerns of futurity even before the sealed book is at all opened. And each of the twenty-four Elders might with as much propriety be separated from his companions and made the symbol of a prophetical period as separate the the four living creatures who appear, not one at a time, but all together at the throne of God. A consideration, however, arises from the sixth chapter which completely destroys this fanciful interpretation. Each of the four living creatures appears actually engaged in one period and that a very early one. They all act, each in his turn, at the opening of the first four seals. By the four living creatures, I therefore throughout understand the collective body of faithful ministers in every given period of the Christian Church. Next, in order, appear before the Lord, the King, the collective body of faithful people. They are symbolized by the twenty-four elders. The Greek word elders were well known as the representatives of the people of Israel and as the constitutional representatives of Christian congregations. By the number 24, being that of the twelve tribes added to that of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the Old Testament and the New Testament churches appear united in one representative assembly. Being made kings and priests unto God, they are seated before the throne. There is in this part of the vision an undoubted reference to the manner in which the Jewish Sanhedrin sat before their president. The throne itself is the segment of a small circle so that the four living creatures being within the segment and before the Lord might be said, as in chapter 4, verse 6, to be in the midst of the throne and round about it. The twenty-four elders were upon seats round about the throne in a semicircle of larger dimensions. They are also all clothed in white raiment, the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, and they are crowned with the crown of righteousness. They and the living creatures sing the new song, chapter 5, verse 9. In a complete circle, embracing both the throne and the semicircle before it, on which the elders sat, were arranged the third class of characters, who composed the splendid retinue, the holy angels. I beheld many angels round about the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. They, they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. They are about the throne, but at a greater distance than redeemed men. Number 3. This vision presents to our view the Redeemer himself before the throne of God, receiving the homage of created beings. The Messiah was not revealed until there was evidently a necessity for his interposition. In no case do we either look for him or desire to acknowledge him until we feel an absolute necessity for an interest in him. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book? And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. Under these very interesting circumstances, when anxiety is at its height, the blessed Redeemer appears in his mediatorial character and inspires the assembly with joy. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. The ministers of his word the church which he redeemed, the unbodied spirits, in countless mirads around them, and the whole creation rejoice at the appearance of him who is both the lion and the lamb, to take the book and to loose its seals. The living creatures and the elders celebrate the praises of their own Redeemer. Other intelligences join in celebrating the praises of the Redeemer of men. No sooner had the Lord Jesus Christ taken the sealed book than the multitude of angels with a shout loud as from numbers without number, sweet as from blessed voices uttering joy, heaven rung with jubilee, and loud hosannas filled the eternal regions. No voice exempt, no voice but well could join melodious part, such concord is in heaven. Footnote Milton. End of footnote. Number two. We shall now attend more immediately to the sealed book itself, to the opening of which all this was introductory. The book, The book which appeared in the right hand of God and was given to Messiah contained the outline of those events which were after that time to come to pass. A book is anything upon which ideas are committed to writing for the purpose of being read. Various sorts of materials were anciently used in making them. The works of Hesiod were written on plates of lead. The laws of Solon were written on wood and divine law was written in Sinai on tablets of stone. From the use of the inner bark of trees in this way, books derived their Latin name, liber. And as the substance written upon, whether bark or papyrus, or parchment, which came afterwards into use, was frequently rolled up for the sake of convenience, books were called volumes, volumen, or rolls, as in Scripture, Ezekiel 2.9. When a writing was thus rolled up, the contents could not be read, and when secrecy or security were intended, the rules were sealed. Footnote, Calmet, End of Footnote In the book before us are the purposes of heaven recorded. They are known to himself before they are accomplished, and they are arranged in due order. These purposes are, however, sealed. They are certainly to be executed, and they are effectually concealed from view until they are either displayed in the event or supernaturally made known to man. In this instance, the roll is sealed with seven seals. Seven was among the Jews a sacred number and is the sign of completeness. This number, says Calmet, is consecrated, as it were, in the holy books and in the religion of the Jews by a great number of events and mysterious circumstances. God created the world in seven days and consecrated the seventh to repose. Every seventh year was also consecrated to the rest of the earth as a sabbatical, also the seven times seventh year as the Jubilee. In the prophetic style, a week, that is seven days, often signifies seven years. Pharaoh's mysterious dream represented to his imagination seven fat and seven lean oxen, seven full ears of corn, and seven empty. The number of seven days is observed in the octaves of the great solemnities, of the Passover, of the Feast of Tabernacles, the dedication of the tabernacle and temple. Observe also the seven branches of the golden candlestick, the number of seven sacrifices often appointed. In the Revelation, the seven churches, seven candlesticks, seven spirits, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven vials, etc. In a word, we may find the number seven throughout the scripture. In the present use of the number seven, it is quite certain that the idea of perfection is involved. The book was completely sealed, and its contents are not to be revealed but by breaking open the several seals, and so unfolding the volume. There is besides an evident reference in this passage to the writings of the earlier prophets. They represented, as a sealed book, predictions which were not understood. Isaiah twenty nine, eleven, and 12 the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed which men deliver to one that is learned saying read this I pray thee and he saith I cannot for it is sealed The words of the Lord respecting what was about to come to pass after the commencement of the Christian era are more immediately applicable to the sealed book now under consideration Daniel 12:9 This pres- this prophet had heard the The Messiah speaking of the great period of twelve hundred and sixty years. Footnote. Time, times, and half. Three years and a half. Forty-two months, etc. End of footnote. So often the subject of discussion in the apocalypse, and frequently before, suggested to Daniel himself, but he understood it not. And I heard, but understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. The book closed up against the inquiries of Daniel and sealed to the time of the end is that which now appears to John in the hands of him that sat on the throne. The prophet was in vain desirous to know its contents and the apostle apostle equally anxious wept because there was none found worthy to open the book. But John the Divine wiped away his tears and joined the general hymn of praise heard among the celestial inhabitants when the Lion of the tribe of Judah appeared and took the book in his hand with design to unfold its contents. It was, it was understood by all, as well as of old it had been by the prophet, that it contained the prospective history of the Mediator's kingdom. Therefore were they so anxious to learn what that history should be, A similar similar anxiety is natural to all liberal and faithful Christians. The Sealed Book Now about to be opened by him who is the root of David and the Lamb of God, is therefore to be considered as a prophetic view of the future interests of religion, as they do affect and are affected by the great social concerns of the human family. The opening of the book, by disclosing its contents, is of course the information which by divine revelation is afforded to us upon this very interesting and important subject. It is necessary, in order to prepare you for the interpretation of the subsequent prophecies of the Apocalypse, that this principle be well understood and kept in recollection. I shall therefore more formally assign my reasons for considering the sealed book as containing the whole of that period of time, the events of which are predicted in the Revelation. First, the whole history of the Church of God on earth, from the commencement of the Gospel dispensation until the General Judgment, is included in the sealed book of the prophet Daniel, and must, of course, except so far as it was already disclosed by the event, be contained in the book which John beheld in God's right hand. His purposes are one, and the books in which they are recorded evidently ad- identify. Daniel 12, verse 4 O Daniel! Shut up the words and seal the book, even to the end of time. These words, however, extend to the period, verse 2, in which they that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Second, the words of the Saviour, the first voice, that address the writer of the Apocalypse, footnote, compare chapter 4, verse 1, with chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, in the footnote gives assurance that such a general history would be given I will show thee the things which must be hereafter third this book appears sealed in the hand of God it is the purpose of the Almighty respecting his church all the inhabitants of the upper sanctuary are anxious to know the contents none but Messiah can be found worthy to unloose the seals to him the book is delivered in the most solemn manner Now, as all the purposes of God are administered by Jesus Christ and thus committed to him to be administered, the book must include the whole scheme of the divine government. Fourth, under the seventh seal is included the whole period of the trumpets. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 And when he had opened the seventh seal, I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet, however, includes the whole of future time. And therefore it must have been originally in the sealed book. Chapter 11, verse 15 to 18. And the seventh angel sounded, And thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. It is indeed the general, if not the uniform mode of the divine spirit, to give in every entire prophecy, at the close of those predictions which exhibit great sufferings to Christians separately, or the church of God collectively, A view of that rest which remains for the faithful where the wicked cease to trouble. The prophecy of the book of Revelation places at the conclusion of it the general resurrection and judgment and thus carries on the history contained in the sealed book to the end of all time when other books behove to be opened for settling the final state of all flesh. Chapter 20, verse 12 to 15 And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The whole period of the apocalyptical prophecy belongs, of course, to the sealed book. The seven periods already designated are included in it although the most interesting parts are more fully described in collateral visions. The little open book of chapter 10 is in the text itself, as will appear in due time, sufficiently distinguished from this great book, but it is to be observed that the period which it particularly describes is a very interesting part of the general one, which is set forth in the role originally held in the right hand of him who sat on the throne it is a very erroneous opinion that the predictions of the Revelation and accordingly the contents of the sealed book point out a very short space of time, a few years after the vision. The wisdom and goodness of God, which provides in every state of affliction suitable support to the faith and constancy of the Church, gives us reason to believe that the spirit of prophecy did not design its holy aid exclusively for the first ages of Christianity. Footnote. Mo no Man. End of footnote. Every section of the Apocalypse which is selected as the subject of lecture will, however, afford us the best opportunity of determining the points of time to which it uh, itself applies. We deem it necessary at present only to add to the preceding consideration that the true Church has found during the long and gloomy reign of superstition over the nations called Christians, great support and consolation from the Apocalyptic Predictions both such as were fulfilling in their own day, and such as are even yet unaccomplished. Dr. Clark has justly observed, God did from the beginning make, and has all along continued to his church, or true worshippers, a promise that truth and virtue shall finally prevail over the spirit of error and wickedness, of delusion and disobedience. Footnote. Connection of Prophecy. End of footnote. The, book of the, the opening of the sealed book being a disclosure of those events which stand connected with the sufferings and the sorrows the victories and the triumphs of the church was remarkably adapted to the conditions of believers during the ages which were destined to precede the millennium it is perfectly becoming therefore that the opening of this book be accompanied with the shouts of both the ministers and the members of the Christian church and they sung a new song saying thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof A long-written roll, fastened with seven separate seals, cannot be entirely disclosed until the last seal is removed, and it would be improper to suppose that each seal would, when opened, exhibit an equal portion of the contents of the roll. Upon such an instrument, seals could not in fact be placed in such a manner as to be visible, and at the same time affect each an equal portion of its contents. Each of the first six open could only disclose comparatively a small part, whereas the last must unavoidably unfold the entire book. We are accordingly prepared, from the nature of the symbol, to expect that the period of time which the six seals describe is comparatively short. The opening of the seventh seal immediately announces announces the angels of the trumpets, and both they and the angels who hold the vials will be found to have executed their commission before the reign of righteousness extends over the earth. The seals, the trumpets, and the vials, therefore, give names in the systems of the best commentators on prophecy to three great distinct periods, from the Apostolical Age to the time of the Millennium. The period of the seals is the first in order, and includes all the events predicted during the opening of the first six seals of the great book. This shall be the subject of the succeeding lecture. Third, I conclude this discourse with two reflections. The vision respecting the sealed book excites joyful joyful anticipations of discoveries elucidating the predictions of the elder prophets and especially those which were uttered by Daniel to the Jewish captains in Babylon. Daniel himself was deeply and anxiously affected by what he saw and heard. John the Divine and the company which he beheld in the temple were deeply affected by what they saw and heard. You too, my brethren, if you drink together in the same spirit with these celebrated and godly men, will take a deep interest in the discoveries made to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. You will receive them with suitable emotions. It is not the love of the marvelous, that principle so natural to all men, but to which the weakest minds are the most prone. It is not the love of the marvelous that we would now court or invite to action. It is not the idle curiosity which makes a man of no discernment discernment or benevolence seek to know and to repeat what others do not know, merely for the gratification of vanity, and which is, of course, more enamored of novelty than of truth, which is satisfied with the semblance of truth. This is not the principle which we would invite to the examination of divine predictions, we use no efforts to awaken the spirit of discontent at the order of God's providence as it respects your present lot, or of selfish calculations of future temporal emolument, without regard to the interest of true religion. We would rather consign such a spirit to perpetual sleep. But we do invite you, Christians, beloved and redeemed of the Lord, to employ your faculties in the diligent acquisition of that knowledge of futurity which the God whom you worship hath deemed of importance supernaturally to lay before you. It is the spirit of love, of zeal, and of a sound mind that we would enlist in this holy service. It is that benevolent sensibility, which, disregarding the perilous and perishing enjoyments of this world, weeps with the afflicted Israelites, and rejoices at the prospect of deliverance of the whole seed of Jacob, that we would cherish and improve. It is that holy, that rational desire of knowing what God is about to do and in what manner He calls for your cooperation in promoting the glory of His great name, in dispensing happiness around Him and in saving your souls. It is this laudable desire of information we would cultivate among you. The vision of the sealed book introduces you to your compatriots, to men of a kindred, kindred spirit, the pastors of the church, And the four and twenty elders, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints, invite you to their fellowship. The throne of light appears surrounded with the token of the covenant of grace. God is in the midst of it. The lion of the tribe of Judah from the throne administers his providence in the support of his ransom inheritance. His voice is heard by believers saying, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. I have delivered to you the invitation. Will you authorize me to express your acceptance, to testify to my God the zeal of his people and their affection for his cause? I I pause for a reply. Yes, I shall offer in your behalf the vow which is demanded. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Second, The the subject under consideration calls upon you, before you retire, to express your satisfaction in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and honor and glory and blessing. This is the song of the angels and redeemed men. We have a right to require and to expect of you that you join in his praises. It is through him alone that you have access to the throne of grace. It is in him alone that you are living members of the church. There is no other name by which you must be saved. Upon the nature of our relation to Jesus Christ depends entirely our Christian character. When that relation is a vital spiritual union, we are justified. Being dead to the law by the body of Christ, we are married to another husband. His righteousness is upon us and his spirit within us. We are true Christians. When that relation is constituted by a sound profession of faith in his doctrine, we are professed Christians. But if the profession be insincere, we are hypocrites. And if there be no more than a profession, then we are no more than nominal Christians. Let us test our sincerity by the doctrine of Christ's exaltation. It is a mode of trial which he himself taught his disciples to employ. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go to the Father." The only possible ground of reluctance to have all power in heaven and on earth administered by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is indisposition to obey some or all of his commandments. This indisposition he himself ascribes to the want of love for him. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Inasmuch, Inasmuch then as it is impossible to love the Redeemer without a corresponding love for his law, So it is equally impossible to love him or his laws without being disposed at the same time to have him as our ruler and without an ardent desire to see the whole concerns of men regulated by Christian principles. I think I might with safety lodge my appeal against the doctrine which limits the mediatorial authority with the hearts of renewed men. What say you? Is it unpleasant to you that your own Savior should be king of nations and of saints? Is it desirable that his authority be under restraint? I know your reply. Left to his own unbiased feelings and to the word of God, no true Christian would ever wish to see the Redeemer's power shortened. Thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he might give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. There would be weeping in heaven if Christ were prevented from reigning. Now there is universal joy because he discloses both by prediction and providential accomplishment, the decrees of God. I wept much, said the apostle, because none was found worthy to open and to read the book. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not! Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. This arrangement gave universal satisfaction he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. It deserves to be distinctly remarked that those ministers and members in the celestial church were far from imagining that his character and sufferings as mediator rendered him less qualified for reigning or less worthy of religious worship. For in the midst of their adoration, they pointed out the official character in which they viewed him when they sung his praise, and assigned as a special reason for their song his sufferings for our redemption. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation. What are we then to think of the religious character of those who refuse to ascribe divine honors and religious worship to Jehovah Jesus? Are they indeed Christians who reject the doctrine of satisfaction for sin by the death of Christ, who exhibit his sufferings not as not in fact the price of our redemption, and who degrade him to the condition of a mere man? The Christian religion is something more than saying, I am a Christian, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Does a man say, I am a scholar? The assertion does not make him one. Does he say, I am a merchant, a landholder, a soldier, a philosopher? His assertion does not make him so. And shall his own assertion entitle a man to be considered as a Christian who gives no evidence of a sanctified spirit, who despises the doctrines of the grace of God, and who proclaims himself a mere partisan of man? This is not an imaginary case. Hundreds claim the Christian name who adopts such language as this. I have no need of a Redeemer to satisfy divine justice for my sins. There is no mediator necessary to establish reconciliation. Jesus Christ is no more than a creature. He is a mere man. I am a Christian only because I believe Jesus Christ to have been a man of talent and virtue at the head of a certain sect. Can you suppose that such a profession makes a true Christian? Then is Christianity is, then is Christianity in nothing essentially different from the religion of the outcast Jew, of the heathen, and of the Mohammedan. And such Christians, like the Jews of old, upon the supposition that our Savior gave himself out as an equal with God, would adjudge him guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. At the most, they could say no better of him than Pontius Pilate when giving him up to the executioner, In this just man I find no fault. You, my dear hearers, have not so learned Christ. You know, he thought, is not robbery to be equal with God. You readily bow before him in acts of humble adoration without feeling the guilt of idolatry. You see that angels also have received the command to worship him. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, God over all, blessed forever." Hear what this first apocalyptical prophecy says of him when he took the sealed book. All creatures adore him. All give him honor equal to that which they give unto God the Father. Every heart beats high with exultation and every tongue is employed in eulogy. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth And such as are in the sea, and all that is in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And all true Christians will imitate their example. Amen and Amen. Lecture 4 The Period of the Seals Revelation 6 and I saw when the Lamb opened the, one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four living creatures saying, Come and see, etc., etc. In this chapter we have a complete specimen of the symbolical style of prophecy, the kind of writing contains in a small compass much information. But like the hieroglyphics of antiquity, or historical painting, it requires skill and accuracy in the application of each part to its corresponding event. Whensoever a diversity of exposition is admissible, with respect to the same or similar symbols, it must, like every other species of figurative language, be determined by the connection. Due attention to this is necessary in order to prevent confusion in the interpretation. In the schedule which I have already laid before you, of the contents of the sealed book, I mention the general division of the events between the Apostolical Age and the Millennium into three distinguished periods, the period of the seals, the period of the trumpets, and the period of the vials. We are in this lecture to examine period 1. It is that part of the book sealed with seven seals which is disclosed at the opening of the six seals first in order. At the breaking of each seal, a portion of the roll or volume is unfolded and the writing becomes legible. Before I proceed to examine the contents of each seal, it will not be amiss to attend to those considerations by which, in connection with the prophecy itself, we are enabled to ascertain the period of history to which the seals refer. From these it will appear that there is no undeterminateness in the apocalyptical predictions And that in our interpretation of them, respect is had to certain fixed principles without giving any scope to fancy or implicity or implicitly submitting to human opinions, however respectable. There is indeed ample evidence that this period embraces the events which came to pass in the Roman Empire under its pagan rulers, from the days of the apostles until the revolution which invested Constantine, called the Great, with the imperial purple. Of this evidence, every person may judge for himself. 1. The sealed book of the Revelation has immediate respect to the Roman Empire. The the power of that government was now universally established over the nations in which the Christian Church existed. The Christians were deeply interested in its policy. They felt severely under its persecuting edicts. They were moreover directed by the prophecy of Daniel to consider it as the last empire that should appear under the influence of Satan to oppose the establishment of Christ's kingdom. The vision of Nebuchadnezzar, interpreted by the prophet in chapter 2, was, at least thus far, well understood. The head of gold had passed away with the Chaldean monarchy. Verse 38, Thou art this head of gold. The breast and arms of silver had been destroyed with the Persian empire, which succeeded that of Babylon verse 39 and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee the kingdom established under Alexander of Macedon had also fallen never to rise verse 39 the kingdom of brass bearing rule over all the earth the fourth empire is the one which existed at the time of John the divine verse 40 the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron and as iron shall it be broken in pieces It was expected according to this prophecy that the the Roman government should undergo such convulsions as should divide it into ten distinct powers still however united in opposition to the authority of Jesus Christ and the Church of God. Verse 41 And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. It was understood too that when Rome should undergo such change the interest of religion, after having suffered great depression, should become paramount and the kingdom of Christ be established. Verse 44 In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. A still more specific account of these same four great empires is given in Daniel chapter 7 under the character of beasts of prey. Verse 17 These great beasts which are four are four kings. The fourth of these had ten horns, indicating the tenfold division already mentioned. Verse 24 And the ten horns out of this kingdom, the fourth kingdom, verse 23, are ten kings that shall arise. This power, under a new form, the little horn, prevailed for a time and times and the dividing of time until true religion triumphed. Verse 22 Until the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. These predictions presented the ro- power of Rome in such a light as could not fail to make men of liberal information look upon its history with great anxiety. From prophecy, they had a right to expect consistency and order, and of course that the Roman Empire should not be overlooked in the system of predictions relative to the public social concerns of the Christian religion. And as the sealed book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 4, was opened, In the presence of John by our Lord Jesus Christ, it is reasonable to infer that it had some respect to imperial Rome, the kingdom of iron, the fourth great wild beast. 2. As the Roman Empire cannot be overlooked in this prophecy, it is equally evident that the view which is given of it must commence from the Apostolical Age. From history it now appears that three great and distinct successive characters have been assumed in this empire since the Christian era. It long existed under the system of heathen superstition. It continued for some time under its imperial form, professing the Christian religion. It has now for ages in its divided state existed in the maintenance of the papal system. These three terms correspond with the three periods preceding the millennium, the seals, the trumpets, and the vials. The seals are the first in order and, of course, belong to the first great period. 3. The design of prophecy furnishes, for the attentive, a key to each great part of the system. This design we have already explained at large. I now only call to your recollection that to furnish believers with ample means of hope and of faithfulness in the midst of their troubles enters into that design. The system of prophecy describes in its course the perils and the pains of the saints, but it closes with a view of their triumphs. Each great period of prophecy will, upon attentive examination, be found to answer this design. It conducts us on a part of our journey and after the toils of the day brings us to a place of refreshment and rest. In exhibiting the state of the Church and of the Roman Empire during the conflicts of Christianity with idolatry, it might be expected that the period would close with the overthrow of paganism by the judgments of Zion's mighty king. 4. Inspection of the prophecy itself furnishes conclusive evidence that the period of the seals is the time between the reign of Domitian and that of Constantine. Prediction certainly respects futurity, and on no principle of sound criticism are we justified in applying the apocalyptical seals to past events the promise made to the apostle is chapter 4 verse 1 i will show thee things which must be hereafter this consideration pre- precludes our adopting the opinions of those who explain the seals or any one of them as signifying what has already come to, what had already come to pass the sixth seal as appears from the text and will be explained in the sequel of this discourse describes a very remarkable revolution The terms employed cannot be applied to any event prior to the era of Constantine, and that time perfectly suits the description. I am aware that several respectable writers have of late denied that any advantage was obtained by the Church in that revolution. If this were indeed the case, it could not have been represented as a time of triumph to the saints. But on this subject there is a great need of discrimination." If we follow the path of Scripture prediction, we will not be found at variance with history. Whatever may have been the moral character or religious standing of Constantine himself, and we are not disposed to rate them highly, the events of his reign were undoubtedly judgments from God upon that great pagan power that long annoyed the saints. If he also, either injudiciously or perversely, intermeddled unduly with ecclesiastical concerns, Still, the actual church, real Christians, found in his authority and plans a shelter from their heathen persecutors. Nor were persons of this description so much affected by the pernicious system of state religion which he introduced, as were the more ambition and, ambitious and worldly-minded ecclesiastics who took an interest in the pompous hierarchy to which he yielded his countenance. While the higher orders of prelatical pride, those creatures of human contrivance, among whom true religion rarely flourishes, were deeply engaged in the political management which respected the more worldly part of the professors of Christianity. The meek followers of the Lamb of God had cause to rejoice in the restraint which was laid upon their avowed enemies. In this point of view, the the revolution was a signal blessing. Nevertheless, the fourth kingdom still retained its beastly character. The Roman Empire remained the kingdom of iron. The government of the empire and the order of the more conspicuous parts of the church were by no means accordant with the principles of Christianity. As the sealed book commences with the time which succeeded John's banishment to Patmos and the sixth seal terminates in the revolution which overturned pagan Rome, the opening of the six seals must of course disclose the leading events of that period, including from 97 to 323 two hundred and twenty six years although we have already proved the propriety of applying the predictions of the six seals to the Roman Empire as it existed before the age of Constantine it still remains to inquire whether these predictions respected civil or ecclesiastical history Jury and Bishop Newton explain all the seals as descriptive of the administration of the imperial government Lord Napier and Mr. Woodhouse esteem it improper to apply this prophecy to any other than ecclesiastical events. Meade, Loman, and Johnston apply the seals to both civil and ecclesiastical events and they appear to me to be nearest the truth. Political changes are, in themselves, beneath the notice of prophecy and the changes of ecclesiastical systems are often mere political commotions. There is little difference between the transactions of states and those of churchmen as to their morality or as it respects the virtue of the public agents, Both may be under the influence of pious principles and both may, and both have often been actuated by selfishness and malevol- malevolence. Too, too generally has it been the case throughout the Roman Empire and the several kingdoms of the earth that there was no true religion in the hands of either the rulers of the church or those of the commonwealth. The difference, as to the actual moral worth, between Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, or even between Laud, Archbishop of Canterbury, and his royal master Charles I, is no cause of controversy. But although there is, in fact, no religion in the transactions of such civilians and ecclesiastics, true religion is frequently very deeply affected by the events which they are the instruments of bringing to pass. On this account, the divine prescience has been employed about both, and both have a place in the system of sacred prediction. The object of the Apocalypse is to illustrate those great moral principles which affect the public interests of true religion, and in doing this, it employs the events of civil history as well as those which are considered ecclesiastical. The six seals are, of course, intended to disclose those events within the specified time, which, whether appertaining to civil or ecclesiastical history, are of more importance to be understood by the friends of the real religion in the world. We shall proceed to the interpretation. Of each of the six seals, in order as they were opened by our Savior, he alone reveals and dispenses what has been determined upon in the the certain secret purposes of God. Seal 1, verses 1 and 2. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder one of the four living creatures saying Come and see And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went forth conquering and to conquer The Apostle, attentively beholding the Saviour and desirous of learning the character of the age observed that when he opened the first seal a part of the written roll was unfolded. In order to persuade us to mark with becoming attention each, each dispensation of divine providence, and to point out the duty of the ministers of Christ in every age in explaining the signs of the times, one of the living creatures in a voice of thunder said, Come and see. It was the first of the living creatures that gave this invitation. Like a lion, he communicated his commands in a voice of authority, bold, Strong and solemn. Come, behold the works of the Lord, Psalm 46, 8, is a precept which faithful pastors are accustomed to deliver. In obedience to the mandate, John looked and saw on the open leaf the representation of a monarch riding forth to conquest. Behold, a white horse. This animal, noted for his comeliness, speed, strength, and fitness for the service of man, is the symbol of the instruments God employs in the dispensations of His providence to accomplish His purpose. White is the emblem of purity. It is pleasant to the sight, and it symbolizes a dispensation of purity and mercy. He that sat on Him had a bow, and a crown was given to Him, and He went forth conquering and to conquer. Bishop Newton, who seems to have been entirely destitute of an evangelical taste, and consequently sees as much purity and splendor in a heathen warrior as in the dispensation of the grace of God, applies this remarkable passage to the emperors Vespasian and Titus. Footnote. The bishop adopted this interpretation from Jeru. End of footnote. They were both numbered with the victims of the king of terrors, however, before the sealed book was opened. The prophecy, therefore could not have no reference to them any more than to Augustus or Romulus. In order to avoid this objection, others have applied the prediction to the reign of Trajan. While we admit that this celebrated emperor possessed admirable talents for government and was very successful in war, the character of his administration by no means compor- comp- comported with the symbol of the first seal. To Christians he was a scourge, Under him persecution prevailed. He often conquered, it is true, but not on a white horse, and it is far from being true that he is hereafter to conquer. He too has ceased to reign. The symbol, in short, can apply only to the triumphs of the Word of God. I have not yet met with any plausible objection to this interpretation, save what arises from the date of the prediction but although the gospel dispensation commenced several years before this vision, it was still progressive. The prophecy does not respect its commencement, but its progress and its future triumphs. This was the most desirable object which could possibly be presented to John the Divine or to the Church of God. And it is evidently a matter of fact, whether in this place predicted or not, that Christianity was then progressive and afterwards to proceed with greater power. The symbol cannot consistently be explained in a different sense. The sacred language forbids any other signification. Psalm 45, verse 3 to 5 Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. Thine arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies, the people fall under thee. Compare these words with the text and they will certainly appear to apply to the same character. The first seal, therefore, exhibits to the pious mind the mediator, riding prosperously upon the dispensation of the gospel of his grace, the white horse, because of truth and meekness and righteousness. He held in his almighty hand the weapons of spiritual warfare, a bow with arrows sharp in the heart of his enemies. A crown was given to him of glory and majesty, Conquering and to conquer, the people fall under him. He is by divine appointment the governor of the universe. He rules in his saints. He rules over his enemies. A succession of conquests shall prepare the way up for his final triumph. Psalm 132.18 His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. If these considerations could leave any doubt upon the mind as to the interpretation now given, it would be completely removed by a portion of this book, which employs this very symbol in a connection which admits not of an application to any Vespasian, or Trajan, or indeed any mere man, or company of men. Revelations 19.11 Behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords this last vision under the seventh vial completes the conquests which were in progress in the first vision at the opening of the first seal such is the commencement and termination of this prophecy seal 2 Verses 3 and 4. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Cheered with the prospect afforded to him of the progress of the gospel, and of its future triumph, the writer of the Apocalypse is, be- is prepared to bear with becoming patience a sight of the troubles which the second seal announces. As the first living creature, the lion, invited him to behold the triumphs of the cross, the second, like the calf or ox, calls his attention to the contents of that part of the roll which is now unfolded. Labor and patience, similar to those of an ox, are the becoming characteristics of the Christian, of the Christian ministry in a period of sufferings. And there went out another horse. A horse is a simple symbol of a dispensation of providence. By its means, providential causes proceed to their end. Zechariah 1, 8-10 Behind him there were red horses, speckled and white. Then I said, O oh, my Lord, what are these? These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. The heathen consecrate, consecrated horses to the sun, because the sun was the object of their worship, and this deity was represented as drawn by horses. The Jews fell into a similar kind of idolatry before the reign of Josiah. 2 Kings 23.11 And he took away the horses which the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entering in of the house of the Lord, and burnt the chariots of the sun with fire. Footnote The rabbins inform us that these horses were every morning harnessed to the chariots, dedicated to the sun and that the king or some of his officers got up and rode to meet the sun at its rising as far from the eastern gate of the temple to the suburbs of Jerusalem others are of the opinion that they were horses which none were permitted to ride or to yoke but were like those which Julius Caesar set at liberty after his passage of the Rubicon the Persians had such horses as well as the ancient Germans those belonging to the Persians were streaked or pied those of the Germans, all white. Herodians call them, Greek word, Calmet. Quote from Calmet. End of footnote. Another horse that was red. This is the color of blood, and indicates the character of the dispensation. It was a bloody, or rather a fiery one. Greek word comes from, Greek word, fire. The angel, says Woodhouse, who leads the host to war among the nations, Zechariah eight is mounted on a horse of the same color. This is also the color of the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, who comes wrathfully to war against the saints. Revelation 12, verse 3, 9 and 17. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. Earth, in common language, has a variety of significations not difficult to distinguish. The connection always settles the proper meaning. It signifies the whole terra globe, the dry land as distinguish, distinguished from the sea, and clay or soil as distinguished from sand and rocks. In science, earth denotes certain brittle inodorous substances, such as lime, alumine, etc., distinguished from metals and acids, etc. By a very common figure of speech, it designates the inhabitants of the world or of some distinct part of the world, and the scriptures very frequently connect with the word the idea of sensuality and corrupt affections. In this text, and in all such connection in this prophecy, earth signifies the Roman Empire. This is evidently its meaning in various parts of the New Testament, and the reason is that it was well known that this empire was in general estimation as well as in scriptural account a universal empire. Footnote, Luke 2 verse 1 End of footnote. Judea itself has been called the earth Psalm forty eight verse two, considered as the place of the saints, the religious world, and each of the four great empires, the Chaldean, the Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman, have in their turn been thus designated as constituting in succession in an eminent degree the political world. Footnote Daniel four, 1, Ezra one two. And Daniel 8, verse 5 and 21, end of footnote. Daniel, particularly, whose sealed prophecy is explained by the opening of the apocalyptical seals, denominates the Roman Empire the fourth kingdom upon the earth. Footnote: Daniel 7:23, end of footnote. And it is meet that earth should, on that account, be employed in the apocalypse as a symbol of that empire take peace from the earth is to involve the empire in war that they should kill one another and for this purpose the symbol of military commission was conferred on him that sat upon the fiery steed. there was given unto him a great sword he that sits on the horse is the one who conducts the dispensation to its proper end and by no means the human instrument that may have been providentially employed in bringing about the event It was not, therefore, Trajan and Adrian, the Roman empires, as Bishop Newton imagines, that conducted the destinies of the world, although they were instruments of divine vengeance. It is to the angel of the covenant the high commission of executing judgment was given. I had a vision by night. Christ, the angel of the covenant, represented himself to me as a man riding on red horse, and behind him were several angels ready to attend his commands. Bishop Hall on Zechariah 1.8 The man, or angel, denotes the Logos, or Son of God, appearing as the captain of God's host or armies. They answer this man or angel as if he were their superior or commander. Quote, A man, one, in human form, even the Son of God, who afterwards became man for our salvation, and he sat like a warrior on a red horse as about to execute vengeance on the enemies of his people. Quote from Scott This prophecy was accomplished in the terrible wars which were waged within the bounds of the empire during the reign of Trajan and Adrian. The Christians suffered, at different periods, great persecution, and the Jews and the heathen, the common enemies of the Christian faith, inflicted upon one another the judgment of the Almighty. It was emphatically a bloody dispensation. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. he uttered his voice, the earth melted, Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. Seal number 3, verses 5 and 6 And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine the third living creature who now invites us to a contemplation of the symbol exposed to view on that part of the rule which was unfolded by breaking the third seal is said Revelation four seven, to have the face of a man Correct reasoning and humane feeling are indicated by this symbol. They are at all times ornamental to the character of the Christian ministry, but especially in a time of sensible afflictions. To sympathize with the poor and reason with the pious in order to convince them of the justness and the kindness of the divine dispensations is the duty of a pastor to his distressed flock. The black horse is the representation of famine. Lamentation 5.10 Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. The other symbols lead to the same idea. He that sat on him had a pair of balances. Greek word, from Greek word, to join, literally signifies that which joins together. It is generally rendered yoke. After all the learning, however, employed by Mr. Woodhouse, in his endeavors to fasten that meaning upon it in this text, we think the translators have acted correctly, correctly in rendering it a scale or pair of balances. In this sense, it is applied not only by profane writers, but frequently by the authors of the Septuagint for the Hebrew word, a pair of scales. Footnote. Quote from Parkhurst. End of footnote. This sense better suits the context. It exhibits the necessaries of life as very scarce. Ezekiel 4.16 Ezekiel 4.16 Behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment. A measure of wheat for a penny. Both Grotius and Vitringa have remarked that the measure of wheat, Greek word, was a man's daily allowance, and that a penny, Greek word, was the daily wages of a common laborer. The design of this expression is therefore to show that although there is not a universal want of bread, there is a great scarcity among the lower ranks of life. Honest industry cannot secure a competency. A laboring man may earn his own bread, but cannot provide for his wife and children. Footnote. Greek words. The chonix is allowed to be about a pint and a half, and the Roman denarius about fourteen cents. As there are 32 quarts, or 128 half-pints in a bushel, the chonix is not quite one-fortieth part of a bushel. Allow it, however, to be the fortieth part, and at fourteen cents, the price of the bushel will be five-sixty. This price, when the wages of a day laborer was so low as fourteen cents, indicates great famine. Debus shows from ancient authorities that in time of plenty, twenty chernies were sold for a denarius. The scarcity must be great when the price of wheat is raised twenty to one and other bread corn is in proportion. End of footnote. Of the luxuries of life, the oil and the wine, there is no scarcity. The affluent do not feel the famine of the land, but as the great body of the Christians, and probably too the most humble and faithful, are found among the industrious, the middle ranks of life, if not among the poor, such a dispensation will be painfully felt by them. Such is, in fact, the picture which history gives of the time succeeding the reign of Adrian, from the year 138, when the Antonine family were raised to the imperial throne, until the time of Severus, there was great suffering for want of provisions throughout the Roman Empire. Of this the Christians were previously admonished. Seal 4, verses 7 and 8 And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the field. An eagle-eyed, spiritually-minded ministry invites us to this scene of woe. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. The sword and the famine are now followed by the pestilence, a pale horse. Paladum mortem dicunt potae, grotius. In this dispensation of holy providence, the king of terrors appears, and hell followed with him our savior, nevertheless, still conducts the destroying angel whithersoever he will. Before him went the pestilence, for he has the keys of hell and death. At the command of the mediator, the agents employed execute their task. Death triumphs, and Hades is satiated with her prey. The sword is continued. The famine still destroys the life of man. The beasts of prey, the persecutors, are not yet effectually restrained, but the most remarkable characteristic of the age is pestilence, the pale, livid green horse. Quote. Mr. Mead observes from Zonerus and Lipsius that a pestilence arising from Ethiopia went through all the provinces of Rome and for 15 years together wasted them. This judgment, which destroyed about the fourth part of the population of the Roman Empire, continued from 211 to 270, a period of 60 years. Of the reign of Gallus and Volusian, Atropius gives this short character. They were memorable only for pestilence and grievous distempers. Sola pestilentia et morbis agritin agrixindinibus notus erum principatus fut. Low man. Seal 5, verses 9 to 11. And when he had opened the fifth. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. By the preceding persecutions, a vast number of Christians suffered martyrdom. The enemy killed their bodies, but had no means of killing their souls. A martyr is a witness, and a Christian martyr is a witness who understands, who believes, and who maintains Christianity at every risk. Those only who were slain for the word of God, and the testimony which in conformity to that word they held, are in the sense of this text reputed martyrs however firmly and constantly men may maintain their principles than those which are sanctioned by the word of God such men have no concern in the present prophecy the souls of the martyrs were under the altar living in the enjoyment of the benefits of the great sacrifice and of the reconciliation with God which that sacrifice secured to believers they still trust in the Lord and although they suffered for his sake they are persuaded of his holiness and truth They accordingly appeal to his justice as the judge of the universe, and confidently carry their cause before him, of whom it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Their appeal is admitted, and a a reply is immediately given to them. Each of them is clothed in white, justified, and publicly recognized as justified by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Fine linen, clean and white, which is the only righteousness of the saints. Notwithstanding the comfort afforded to the pious mind at the opening of the first seal, the scenes of distress and horror which appeared under the three following seals were such as to appall the stoutest heart. It is not easy to ascertain or to describe the number of actual persecutions under pagan Rome. Some of these persecutions were provincial and others were universal. The power of Rome claimed the right of deciding upon the religion of its subjects and from this principle, as impious as it it is cruel, flowed both toleration and persecution. The principle was reduced to practice, and the tyrannical policy of the fourth beast dictated. The religions of the conquered provinces were tolerated as often as it suited this policy. The several kinds of idolatry having little hostility to each other, because all flowed from the same fountain of falsehood, were perfectly capable of intermixture and thus the gods of the subjugated nations were recognized at Rome and admitted to the Pantheon. It was far otherwise with the doctrine of salvation by a divine mediator. Christianity could make no compromise with false religion. There is no communion between light and darkness. Its demands upon men are great, and it requires the whole heart and life. These demands excited corresponding provocation. And in proportion as worldly policy directed, the church was either tolerated or persecuted. Primitive writers were in the habit of reckoning ten at very extensive or universal persecutions. They are enumerated by Dr. Cave as follows that is, persecution. Number one commenced AD 64 under the Emperor Nero, number, number two commenced AD 90 under the Emperor Domitian. Number 3 commenced A.D. 107 under the Emperor Trajan. Number 4 commenced A.D. 118 under the Emperor Adrian. Number 5 commenced A.D. 163 under the Emperor Verus. Number 6 commenced in the year A.D. 202 under the Emperor Severus. Number 7 commenced A.D. 235 under the Emperor Maximinus. Number 8 commenced AD 250 under the Emperor Decius. Number 9 commenced AD 257 under the Emperor Valerian. And number 10 commenced AD 303 under the Emperor Diocletian. These were not all the persecutions which took place under pagan power. The number of provincial and universal persecutions taken together far exceeded ten but the universal persecutions taken separately did not amount to that number. Those mentioned by Dr. Cave, nevertheless, whether provincial or universal, were certainly so great as to merit particular notice. The peculiar design, however, of the fifth seal is to illustrate doctrines of vast importance to the Church. It exhibits in a safe state of conscious activity the souls of Christians immediately on their separation from the body, and accordingly sets aside the idea of the materialists that death affects the soul as well as the body. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain, and they cried with a loud voice. It demonstrates the principle that beings perfect in holiness and in happiness, and consequently free from malevol- malevolent, may earnestly desire to behold just judgments executed upon the ungodly persecutors. Christians, accordingly, may consistently pray for the punishment of their enemies. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost Thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? It exhibits the principle of retaliation as a part of the system of God's moral government. This principle we shall illustrate more fully in our exposition of the judgment of the third vial. It may be sufficient in this place to quote the judicious remarks of Dr. Johnston. It seems to be an essential part in the constitution of God's moral government of the world that the vengeance of heaven shall follow those men who with malevolent hearts imbrue their hands in the blood of their fellow men. The voice of Abel's blood cried to God from the ground for vengeance on the guilty head of Cain. This is the express express declaration of God. Genesis 9, 5 and 6 Surely your blood of your lives will I require... At the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. When innocent blood is shed, not by individuals merely, but by communities of men, it seems to be peculiarly fit that vengeance should be taken on those communities in this world, in the course of divine providence, independent of that account of which every guilty individual must give for himself at the bar of God. As it is only in this world that communities exist in their collective capacity, it is in this world only that they can be punished in their public character. End of quote. Retaliation is to be exercised upon them that dwell on the earth. The earth we have already shown is the Roman Empire, and that empire shall be overthrown. The fifth seal... "...shows the time when this event shall come to pass, when anti-Christian Rome shall have completed her persecutions. The martyrs are required to have patience until, with that empire, the cup of iniquity be full, and then shall the fourth beastly power be destroyed. Then shall the saints possess the kingdom. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled." Seal number six, verses twelve to seventeen. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and, lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? It has been justly said by several able expositors that this magnificent description is borrowed from the great day of the final retribution. Then shall the Lord say to the Redeemer his vicegerent, Go then, thou mightiest, in thy Father's might. Ascend my chariot. Guide the rapid wheels that shake the heavens' faces. Bring forth all my war. Pursue the sons of darkness. Drive them out from all heavens' bounds into the under deep. There let them learn, as likes them, to despise God and Messiah, his anointed King. Footnote. Quote from Milton End of footnote Seeing also that the scenes referred to in these verses belong to the Day of Judgment, there are not wanting men who consider the sixth seal as displaying that last and awful period. This opinion is as ancient as the days of Cyprian. It is nevertheless founded upon very inaccurate principles of interpretation. In the predictions of the Apocalypse throughout, the great doctrines of the Christian religion are taken for granted, and although frequently referred to and illustrated, it is not the object of this part of the sacred volume, so much to reveal doctrines as predict events which were the otherwise, either scarcely or not at all foreknown. The doctrine of future retribution is always taken for granted in this prophecy, and is very often referred to as affording an illustration of the several objects of the sacred prediction. But in no one instance in the Apocalypse, Is it the subject of a prophecy to predict the day of judgment? That event is too certain upon other principles to stand in need of a particular prophecy to assure us that it shall come. Before we can have much interest in reading or hearing the revelation made to John the Divine, we must be convinced that it is appointed unto all men once to die, and after death the judgment. Every Christian minister endeavors to keep this doctrine continually before his congregation, but he cannot on that account be said to prophesy that there shall be a day of universal retribution. Equally improper would it be to say that the sixth seal is a prophecy of the day of judgment. The imagery employed as a symbol belongs indeed to that day, but it is here employed to predict quite another event. This is done upon the principle that the judge of the universe will also judge each community as such in its proper time and that all these partial judgments lead us to meditate upon and prepare for that which is final and universal in many places besides the passage of scripture now under consideration the description of the day of judgment is employed by the prophets to represent the fall and punishment of states and empires of Babylon by Isaiah chapter 13 of Egypt by Ezekiel Chapter 30, verse 2 to 4, and 32, verse 7 and 8. Of Jerusalem, by Jeremiah, Joel, and by our Lord. Matthew 24. Assuredly, that judgment which it pleased God to inflict upon the Roman Empire, in which paganism and its persecuting supporters were overthrown, merits as magnificent a description as the fall of Egypt or Babylon.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books